Merry Christmas. It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, Today we're going to be continuing our focus on missions. Uh, And this is an important thing that we are doing as we've gone through December. Uh, We are still giving for Lottie Moon and we're still considering that offering with the offerings we have had for that and the money that our churches has provided for international missions has been phenomenal to this point and I would implore you to to think through again what God is offering or God has laid on your heart to give for that all of that money goes directly to IMB missionaries none of that is for our church and so think think about what you were uh, giving for that and so as we've been considering missions and the whole idea of why God has left us here on earth the, the work of international missions has been part of that we have been considering um, the Brubakers as they are going to China. Uh, next week, we will be commissioning them off as they go uh, to help strengthen our relationship with missionaries and with churches in China. But of no doubt, the reason why we think about missions during this month is because this is the month that we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and his first advent, his first coming to us. And so that always brings up the question, what is the reason for the season? And there are plenty of bad things that people have as sort of the reason for the season. And they seem good, but they're not always great. They would say that it's about family. I'm all for spending time with family, but Jesus Christ did not come so that you could spend time with your family. He didn't need to do that. It's not even about giving. We've implored you to give. We talk about giving. We're unashamed in that, not because it goes toward the glory of Crossway, but because we want to use it for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we expect our members to give, but it's not about giving. It certainly is not about getting, although we do plenty of that as well. It is about Christ. So now we've finally gotten to what it's about. I know some of you are expecting me to say amen and you can go home, but we're not quite done yet. So we need to know what it is about Christ. What is it that's important about Christ? What is the reason for Christ to be the reason for the season? What has Christ done? What is the purpose of Christ being the center and the focus of this season? An English professor wrote on CNN last year that Christians look to Christmas as a time to remember the coming into this world of the Messiah, which, is, uh, which in Greek is translated as the Christ. Christ was not the last name of Jesus of Nazareth. It was his identity as the voice of God in the human world. Think about it this way. Christmas is about revealing the divinity in each of us. We have a piece of God in us. And as Jesus reveals, and Jesus reveals how to access that holy part of ourselves. Jesus was not God's plan B. He was plan A. As Richard Rohr explains, and I've gradually come to believe him, not me. Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity. Rather, Jesus came into this world to change the mind of humanity about God. What I expected to find when I opened up an opinion piece on CNN about Christmas was a flaming pile of word garbage I did not quite find that. There's a lot of very good things that Mr. Perini writes in here. He's sloppy, but he almost gets the hypostatic union correct. I'm not sure that he quite nails it, and I'm not sure what he means by it. But he's close. That is part of the reason why we celebrate Christmas is because God has come down and taken on flesh. He is not just God's voice in the world, but he is the perfect imprint of God in the world. But he loses me when he says it's to change our mind about God. And even then, we have to ask, how does he do that? That's not necessarily wrong, but how does he do that? What is the purpose of him doing that? 
We've talked about the fact that we are to be on mission, but we are on mission because Jesus has sent us on mission, and our mission looks a lot like the mission that Jesus came with. John 17, 18, something we have referenced many, many times in the recent weeks. As you have sent me into the world, Jesus says, I have also sent them into the world. This is not just the apostles. This isn't just first century Christians that he has sent into the world. This is all of us. Everyone who calls themselves Christians, Jesus has accepted you in, and then he pushes you out that you might go into the world. And our ministry to the world is a lot like Jesus' ministry to the world. So, if we are to ever understand how we are to be missions, we are to achieve missions, we are to engage in missions to the world, we have to know what Jesus' mission was. If we don't know what Jesus was here to do, we will never do what he has called us to do. So today we're going to look at what the mission of Jesus was in the world, and we're going to look at it through three ideas. Jesus has historically been thought of as a prophet, a priest, and a king. These are called the three offices of Jesus, but they also speak of God's mission in sending Jesus and what he sent Jesus to accomplish. This is the time when I normally tell you to look up a piece of scripture, but we are going to be covering vast amounts of scripture today. So for those of you who like Bible drills, this is the sermon for you. For those of you who like to sit down in a text, maybe the book of Hebrews would be a good book to open to at the end of chapter six. We will get there in time. First, we want to talk about Jesus as a prophet. Jesus has come to be a prophet who reveals. He is a prophet who reveals. When we think of prophets, uh, quite often, what we think about are people who proclaim the future. They tell us what is going to be. And so we think of, in, at Christmas time, especially the, that super important verse from Isaiah, Isaiah 7:14, where the virgin will conceive, have a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah writes that 700 years before the coming of Christ, and Matthew and Luke pick up that verse and they say, ah, this is why Mary was a virgin, you see, because Isaiah foretold it. So we oftentimes only think of prophets as those who foretell the future. They are talking about the future. They will tell us what the future holds before it comes. But that is actually an incredibly limited portion of what a prophet did. The whole point of a prophet was to declare to people the very nature and the character of God. So probably one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, if not the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, is not found in any of the books that we call prophecy. It is actually Moses. Moses was the one who led the people out of Egypt. Moses was the one who went up on Sinai. Moses was the one who talked to God as a man talks to a man face to face. Moses was the one who knew more about God than anyone else. It is Moses who declares to the people the very nature and the character and the quality of God. These are people, remember, who have come out of Egypt, who do not know him. They know this God as a distant memory of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they have not seen him. They have not been around him. They do not know who he is. And so as Moses leads them out into the promised land, before he enters the promised land, because he cannot enter the promised land, he gives them a sermon out of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is probably three different sermons, but the major chunk is one long sermon. And in that, he is trying to declare to them the very nature and the character of God. In the middle of that, Deuteronomy 18, Moses says these words, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. He says, I am a prophet. Moses has said very little about what will definitely happen in the future. 
But what he has done a great deal of is saying, this is who your God is. You don't know who your God is. But listen to me, I will tell you who your God is. And there will come a day when God will raise up from among your brothers a prophet like me who will declare to you who God is, what God is like. So we read an example of this just out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, 14 through 15. Moses gives instruction and then he tells you why because of the character of God. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. You're not to follow them. You, you can't have a little bit of this God and a little bit of those gods. You can't pick and choose your gods like this is some sort of holy buffet. You, you can't do any of that. You, you are not to go to those people. You're not to go to their gods. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. The explanation for that, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the Lord your God will become angry with you and obliterate you from the face of of the earth. Why are you not to do this? Because your God is like this. Moses was clearly laying out for the people, not just things that they were supposed to do and things they weren't supposed to do, but in doing that, he was explaining to them the very character of God. He was revealing to them what God was like. We need this because we're all sinful. We can't know what God is like from our hearts and our feelings. We need God to explain it to us and we need people to have God having it explained to them to then bring it to us so that we might know who God is like. And all the prophets are like this. Now I I referenced before Isaiah and you can go to Isaiah and you can go to Jeremiah and you can go to Ezekiel and a great deal of their time is explaining things that Moses has already said. Very little of their, their books, very little of them are actually talking about things that have happened and will happen in the future. Isaiah is probably a huge exception to that. But most of Jeremiah, most of Ezekiel, those things are pointed toward the future, but they say very, very few things or large chunks of it are simply explanations of what Moses has already said. They are explaining the very nature of God to us. So who is this God? Is there a, a, a sort of summary from the book of Moses that we could go to and, and have a picture of who this God is? Well, probably the, the best and most specific example of this comes in Exodus 34. God has allowed his people to be led out, but he is about to destroy them and Moses intercedes and Moses comes back to them knowing how sinful the people are and he says, listen, God, I've got real problems here. These people are stiff-necked, they're stubborn, they're not going to listen to me. You need to be with me or this is a failed exercise. And if I'm going to give them your law, if I'm going to talk to them about you, I need to know who you are. And so he says in a moment of, I don't know, unrivaled provocation, show me your glory. Show me the very thing that you are. Show me your nature is is another way of saying that. Tell me who you are. What what are you in your essence? And God says, hey, hey, slow down. I will show you some of who I am. You can't see all of it because you'll die, but I'll show you enough. So God hides him in the cleft of a rock and passes before him and says these words. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, that is God's name, Yahweh, Yahweh, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. 
That, that is probably the most concise and the most specific summary of who God is in all of the Old Testament and perhaps in all of Scripture. And yet, if you listened closely, there's a huge problem with what God says to Moses. There's a huge problem. He says, in one breath, literally right next to one another, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Right next to one another, unashamed, God says, I am a forgiving God, but I am a wrathful God. I will forgive people, but I will never let the guilty go unpunished. On one hand, it says that God is merciful, forgiving. And on the other hand, it says that he will not get rid of the guilty. On one hand, it says, I will forgive. And on another hand, he says, but I also will never forgive. I don't know how you would think to work those things out. How can a God be a forgiving God and have that in his nature to forgive and at the same time be a God who will never, ever leave the guilty unpunished? Jesus is the prophet who declares to us the nature of God. Moses had to declare to us the nature of God as God revealed it to him. Jesus does not have to do that. He is not a prophet. He is the prophet. That is not Muhammad. That is Jesus. He is the prophet. For he shows us perfectly who God is, for he is God incarnate. He is the God of God. He is light of light, very God of very God. He is the word of God made flesh. The word of God that made the universe has come to us in human flesh, lying in a manger. All that he does then is the very nature of God. And he can't walk down the street without revealing God to you because that's who he is. The best way that he does this, though, is at the cross. Because at the cross... All of God's attributes can be seen in once in a way they can't anywhere else. His justice, his wrath, his anger, and his jealousy played off at the very same time against his mercy, his grace, his kindness, and his love. God at the cross of Jesus Christ shows himself to both uphold the very nature of the law, holding us guilty on the cross and carrying out the sentence of justice, while at the same time, forgiving us and having mercy upon us at the same instance. Only because Christ is there on the cross, both carrying his own, the burden of guilt that we had, he carries that for us and forgives us at the same time. It is only at the cross that God both forgives and holds guilty. It is only at the cross that God both is merciful and just. Paul says it this way. In Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of you are sinful. Every single one of you. Do not give God the glory that he is due. You fail him in every way and every moment of every day. You do not understand how great God is. Your mind cannot control the fact that you don't have the capacity to understand how great God is. And because of that, you were sinful before him. Before you've done anything, you were sinful because you don't know the greatness of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified. They are declared innocent freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness. 
Now here's the point that Paul's getting at. That God was good to his word. How is God good to his word? What is God's word? At the very least, it is, I am a forgiving God, but I will by no means clear the innocent or clear the guilty. God presented him to demonstrate God's righteousness in the present time so that he would be both the just one and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. By punishing the guilt of our sin on Christ, God shows himself to be just and by doing that, he allows himself to justify us, to clear us from our guilt. Only Jesus Christ can reveal God in that way. How else could those things be reconciled but in the cross of Jesus Christ? And it is only because Christ came as a prophet to reveal to us the very nature of God that we can ever see truly and clearly what the nature of God is. He is a God who is just and he is a God who is merciful. He is a God who is kind and he is a God who is angry. He is a God who is forgiving and he is a God who is full of wrath and all of those meet in Jesus Christ. He has come as a prophet to reveal God to us. Secondly, he has come to be a priest who reconciles us. He has come as a priest who reconciles. Christ did not just come to reveal. Friends, that is not good news. Simply revealing God to us is not good news. It does not clear us from our guilt. But Christ has also come to reconcile us. This was the job of the priests in the Old Testament. Priests were there to provide offerings and sacrifices to God to assuage his guilt, to make people atone for, to make their sin go away, that God might have mercy on them another year. The, the priesthood is set up, given to the tribe of Levi in Numbers 3. So a little bit of background information. The tribes of Israel are 12, and they are Jacob's sons. So we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the first in the line of the Israelites, Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Levi is one of those tribes. In Numbers 3, verses 11 through 13, God declares to Moses this, I have taken the Levites from the Israelites in the place of every firstborn Israelite from the womb. The Levites belong to me because every firstborn belongs to me. At the time I struck down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated every firstborn in Israel to myself, both man and animal. They are mine. I am the Lord. In other words, when God visited the tenth plague upon Egypt, which was the destruction of the firstborn, he told Israel, every single firstborn is mine. You are to give them to me. But God has changed that a little bit. And he said, now, instead of you giving every firstborn to me, I'm going to take an entire tribe and I'm going to use them as priests. And they're the ones who are to offer. Moses comes from the tribe of Levi. Aaron, his brother, comes from the tribe of Levi. Aaron becomes the high priest. He is the first in a line of succession of priests. The pinnacle of the priesthood comes in the high priest entering the Holy of Holies and making atonement for the people. Every year, the guilt of all of Israel would come down and he would place blood on the altar and blood in the sanctuary and he would put sins on a goat and send it out to make atonement for the sins of the people of God. Leviticus 16, 32 through 34. The priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as high priest in the place of his father will make atonement. He will put on the linen garment, the holy garments, and make atonement for the most holy place. He will make atonement for the tent of meeting and the altar and will make atonement for the priests and all the people of the assembly. He will make 
reconciliation between God and man. The people have sinned before God, but he cleanses their sin by not only sending the sin away, but by sprinkling blood on the altar. But there is a problem. We call Jesus a priest, but Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. How can we call him a priest? It's important to realize that there's a distinction here. I am a doctor. I have that in my title. But my kids will tell you that does not authorize me to make medical decisions for anybody. They're real sticklers about that. I don't get it. I'm a doctor, I say. No, that doesn't count. So whatever. Apparently, that's a major qualification. Jesus is not qualified to be an ironic priest. Not ironic, but ironic, like Aaron. He's not qualified to be a priest. So why can we call him a priest? We might think that this is a problem, but the New Testament actually thinks this is excellent, excellent news for us. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20. Jesus has entered there, that is, the holy of holies. He has entered the holy of holies. Now, what he means by this in the book of Hebrews, just as an aside, is not the holy of holies in the temple. He means the holy of holies in heaven. Christ has entered the holy of holies in heaven and has offered our sacrifice there, not in the copy, but in the real thing in heaven. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Aaron? No. Levi? No. According to the order of some dude named Melchizedek. It's a very odd thing. Melchizedek gets very little play in the Old Testament. This makes it seem like he's a huge, important character in the Old Testament. The guy gets eight verses, eight verses that he is not in every single one of in the book of Genesis. That's it. With one exception, he gets one other verse in the book of Psalms. But that's actually a really important verse in the book of Psalms. In those eight short verses in Genesis, Abraham comes and meets him and gives him a tenth. He gives him a tithe of what he owns. And in Psalm 110, one of the most important messianic psalms that the Old Testament contains, this psalm of David, David writes this in the first four verses. This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. All of that is kingly language. Ruling with a scepter, commanding battles over your enemies. Those are all king's work. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor. From the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest, not a king. Not a king. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Why? Why would David, who knows the priesthood well, they're right down the block, right? He can see the temple. He knows where the priests are. He knows what they are to do. Why would he say that this coming king, who is greater than David, why would he say that the coming Messiah will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek? Well, Hebrews 7.11, just a couple of verses later in the book of Hebrews, gives us a hint at this. The book of Hebrews writes, Now if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear? said to be according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the order of Aaron. In other words, if Aaron could make you complete, if Aaron could make you whole, if, if the sacrifices in the Holy of Holies that these priests were to do year in and year out and year in and year out were able to make you reconciled to God fully and totally, full stop, 
David would never have written this. In other words, David wrote this because he knew, he knew that whatever was happening with the sons of Aaron, whatever sacrifices they were giving, they were not making the people perfect before God. They weren't doing a full job. And so there needed to be a different order. Hebrews 7, verses 15 and 17, just a little ways down. And this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears who did not become a priest based on a legal regulation about physical descent. The Levites had to be Levites. You you didn't have a choice. You can't control the kinds of kids that come from your womb. You can't. Some of them are going to be bad. Some of them are going to be doofuses, okay? There's plenty of Aaronic priests that are doofuses. There's plenty of them. Eli's two sons, the Bible literally says they are worthless. They're worthless before me. But they were high priests. They were priests before God because it was simply part of the law. It was part of bodily descent. And he says Jesus is better than that because he's not appointed high priest simply because he comes from the right tribe. He's appointed high priest He says, on the basis of an indestructible life, on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, for it has been testified, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He's like Melchizedek, who in the book of Genesis appears without a birth narrative. He goes away without death. We have no idea where his life begins. We have no idea where he dies. That is what the Bible means when it says you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You were a priest before God, but you were a priest before time began and you were a priest long after anything else happens forever and ever and ever. In the incarnation, the God who always was is now a man and in the resurrection, the man who is God is now a man forever. There is never a time when the son was not. There will never be a time when the son is not anymore a man. He is high priest forever, like Melchizedek, who in the narrative never dies. And this is important because in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews hints at why Aaron couldn't get rid of sins. In the sacrifices, there is a remainder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It doesn't mean that it can't cover sin, which is what it was meant to do. It covers it really well, but it can't get rid of it. When you sweep your house, you clean your house, you get up that pile of dust and every day you sweep it under the rug and you do it again under the rug and under the rug. This is how I cleaned when I was a kid. It's how I cleaned my room. Everything got shoved under my bed. Didn't matter that my mattress was springing about four inches above the little metal thing that goes below it and I kind of teetered on it. Just shove everything under your bed and it's clean now. That is what the Aaronic priesthood was to do. They simply covered sins. They didn't take them away. Bulls are not righteous or holy enough, but Jesus' blood is strong enough to take away our sins. And therefore, Aaron's sacrifices could never fully reconcile you to God because he could never take away your sins. Good news, friends. Jesus came as a prophet to redeem us and to reconcile us to God. And we can be fully reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ, who unlike Aaron's sacrifices can fully take away all our sin. He offers up himself as a sacrifice. He came to be a priest to reconcile us to God. And third, he came to be a king who rules. He came to be a king who rules. He's not just a prophet who reveals or a priest who reconciles, but he is a king. 
And in the Old Testament, and frankly, in every kingdom, kings had two fundamental roles, only two fundamental roles. First, a king orders things. He orders things. And by that, I mean both. He calls for you to do things. But secondly, it is his role to provide order and structure to a kingdom, to limit chaos. At the end of the book of Judges, there's a refrain that goes and weaves itself through the end of the book of Judges. Judges is a horrible book where Israel just continues to sin and continues to forget who they are. They've got no connection to God. They end up being worse than the pagan cultures that surround them. And the book of Judges has this one refrain, and actually it ends with this refrain, and it is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's important that that doesn't say, and there was no priest in Israel. So God was never reconciled to his people. It doesn't say that there was no prophet in Israel so that the people never really knew who God was, but there was no king in Israel. So everybody was in full anarchy. They just did whatever they thought was right and whatever they thought was true. It didn't matter if there were prophets there. It didn't matter if there were priests there. What they needed to order and to structure Israel was a king. This is the very one of the very first things we learn about God. God is a king. And what kind of king is he? He creates all of the universe and Genesis says it is formless and it's void. So what does God begin to do? He begins to tackle the chaos and the disorder of his creation by ordering it and filling it. He forms it and he fills it. The first three days, he starts to make distinctions so that things aren't muddled. He begins to change light and night Light and day become separate from night and darkness. There is sky and heaven separated from one another. There is water and land separated from one another. It's no longer formless, but it has forms, it has boundaries, it has distinctions. And then secondly, the second three days, he starts to fill those things in. He populates the stars in heaven. He populates the fish in the sea. He populates the birds in the air. He puts creeping things on the ground so that each thing goes in its respective places. He is a God of order. Unless you miss it, even the poetry is incredibly highly structured. There was morning, there was evening, first day. It's so structured to tell you this is a God who is providing structure. If you didn't catch it, the very nature of the poetry screams it. It's meant to be about structure. God is providing order. This is why he's king. Kings provide order. Kings in the Old Testament continually failed because they failed to provide order for their people in two ways, in idolatry and in justice. They didn't make sure that Israel worshiped the one true and living God. They allowed their people to go off into any other gods and it creates confusion. Should I offer my son to Molech so that we might have a better crop this year? Should I worship on an Asherah pole so that my wife might get pregnant? How should I go about securing the favor of the gods? If you aren't providing a theological and a worshipful center to everything that you do, then you are sowing tons of chaos. Injustice. Listen, when people don't know if wrongs will be punished or rights will be upheld, there's chaos. If they see people getting away with stealing and they see people getting away with murder and there is no rhyme or reason for it because people refuse to stand up and do what is right according to the rule of law, there is chaos because they don't know that they will be punished. They think that they can get away with it. It leads to chaos and it leads to anarchy. Injustice promotes chaos. 
Idolatry promotes chaos. So Jesus comes, and he comes as a king. He doesn't, he doesn't ever strike this from your thought immediately. He never comes and says, you are forgiven. Go and be on your way. He doesn't say, you were forgiven. Go ahead and do whatever your heart kind of drums up. As he's leaving, he looks at his disciples and says, you are to go. You are to make disciples of all the nations and you are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. The same Jesus who right before that stands up and he says, every ounce of authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the ruler of all of it. Tell people to obey me. And when we hear that, we immediately think we are to obey him because like English subjects to their king, they're supposed to be allegiant to him. They're supposed to do this. This is what you do for a king. But I would beg you to understand that that's not always what's going on. It is, right. You need to obey Jesus because he's king. But you obey him because he gives order, not just because he gives orders. You obey him because it's good for you. The fact that you would sin against God and the God of all creation means that your judgment of what is right or wrong and good or bad is horribly skewed. You've made a hash of your life. You have all ruined it. God knows best. Jesus knows best how to order your life. And so when he says, you are to act this way, you are to live this way, you are to do this, it isn't simply to make you dance like a puppet of some sort. It is because it's for your good. It is to give you peace. It is to give you comfort. It's to give you self-control, kindness, happiness, and joy. He doesn't see how high you can jump just to see how high you can jump. He calls on you to jump high to show the joy of being able to do so. God calls on you to do things because he wants your life to be ordered the best way. First, he rules. But second, kings were there to conquer. In 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20, the people have been calling for a king. Judges ends with this, this need for a king. And so the people in 1 Samuel, the two books over, start to call for a king. And Samuel goes to him and he says, listen, listen, king's not so great, guys. Kings are going to take all your stuff. They're going to take your sons. They're going to take your land. They're going to take your produce. They're going to take them all. You can't stop them. They're going to do whatever they want to. You think Uncle Sam's bad? Take away any rules. And that's what kings can do. And the people say, yeah, we want a king. And this is actually what they say. Nah was a paraphrase. No, they said, nah, it's all the same. We must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. They were wrong on, or they were right on both counts. They were wrong to ask for a king so that they might be like all the other nations, although it would eventually make them like all the other nations. But they were right in that the purpose of a king is to go out and fight their battles. Saul is called to be the first king. And very soon he does what is displeasing to God and God takes the kingdom away from him. But, interestingly, allows him to remain as king even as he sends Samuel to anoint David, little David, and anoints him as king. Now, it seems weird because the rest of Saul's life, 15 years or so, Saul is living and acting as king. David is the actually anointed king, but he's not acting like a king. He doesn't get to have any of the pomp and the circumstance that kings do. 
The interesting thing, though, is the very first incident that both of these men are recorded in as an actual act out in the world shows David as king and not Saul. The very first thing is Goliath. In 1 Samuel 17, verses 8 and 9, the giant Goliath stands and he shouts to the Israelite battle formations, Why do you come out and line up in battle formation? He asks them. Am I not a Philistine? He's saying, why are, you even, why are you even pretending to come out to battle? Okay. Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. He looks at all of them. He says, why are you lining up in battle like men? You're not men. You're not fighting. You're standing there. You want to come fight? Come and fight me. And all the while, Saul sits on his horse. He doesn't fight. He doesn't go out in battle. David shows up. Little David, just a runt. David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's a really good question. Who's going to stand up and fight for his people? Saul doesn't. The king will. So David goes get five little stones, sinks one of them into the skull of Goliath, kills him. And then, something we almost all miss, or we don't mistake, but we, we don't remember, what does David do after he kills him and sinks the stone into his head? He takes out his sword and he cuts off his head. That is what we call beating a dead horse. He's dead. You don't need to take off his head. But it's important. Genesis 3.15 I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel, he says to the serpent. David struck the head of the serpent and he killed it. But make no doubt, those enemies kept coming back. That serpent kept regenerating heads. If it wasn't the Philistines, it was going to be the Assyrians. If it wasn't the Assyrians, it was going to be the Babylonians. If it wasn't the Babylonians, it was going to be the Romans. Until we get to the New Testament, and we find that the New Testament quickly identifies that there is a serpent behind all of those other serpents. There is one power behind all of those powers, and it is Satan. So Jesus comes. And he comes to defeat Satan. But he doesn't do it the way we would think he would. Being an all-powerful God, he doesn't evaporate him from the earth. Being an all-powerful God, he doesn't speak a word and nullify his very existence. No, what does he do? He allows Satan every opportunity to take every shot he possibly can. He allows Satan to totally, totally empty and evacuate his arsenal and to throw every punch he can. The only weapon that Satan has that is a very long-lasting power is that of death. And Jesus allows himself, and let's be very clear, allows himself to be taken by death. 
so that he can be punished to the full, so that Satan can do everything within his power. He can empty himself out on Jesus. And in three days, he gets up and he says, anything else? Jesus has fought the fight that you and I could not. We can't stand up to Rome. We can't stand up to Babylon. We couldn't stand up to Assyria. We certainly cannot stand up to Satan. But our king fought for us. In the book of Revelation, chapter 4, one of the elders says to John, do not weep. John's weeping. God has a scroll in his hand. It's clearly the will of God that's going to be played out in the rest of the book. It's going to be played out in the, all of human history. The scroll can't be opened. And John, John sees the entire world crumbling around him. And, and this elder says, don't weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one, and notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, I saw one as a lion. I saw a giant soldier of a man standing there. He doesn't see Jesus like he sees him later in chapter 17, coming on a white horse with a sword coming from his mouth and blazing eyes of bronze. That's the kind of thing we expect, but that's not how he conquered What John sees is not a warrior. He sees a lamb standing as though slain. The lion of Judah was the lamb. He conquers through his death. In chapter 12, as Satan is thrown out of heaven, we have this. In verses 10 through 12, I heard a voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God And the authority of his Christ has now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Jesus has won the battle that you could not win because he is your king he is a king who has come to rule, to give you order and, and chaos to be cast out from your life, to give you quality and joy and happiness and comfort and peace. And he does that not only by giving you commands to follow, but by vanquishing all of your enemies. There is no one who will stand up to you. So let us not forget the mission of the Lord. He came as a prophet to reveal God to us. He came as a priest to reconcile us to God. And then he came as a king to rule wisely over us. But let us not forget how he did those things. Was he powerful? Yeah. Any man who can stand up and say to the winds and the waves, stop, and they stop. Any man who can look at a demon-possessed boy and say, get out, and the demon leaves. Any man who can cast out demons and raise the dead and can make bread from nothing is a powerful man, but that's not how he does any of these things. We think of him as a helpless babe, but you need to remember as he grew up, he didn't become powerful in the ways of the world. He, he didn't become mighty as the world considers might. He didn't become powerful the way the world considers power. He became powerful and he became mighty by being faithfully obedient. He did not use his omnipotent power to gain the favor of God. He didn't use his omnipotent power to defeat his enemies. He didn't use his omnipotent power to do any of the things that we've talked about today. Instead, what he did was he was faithfully obedient to what God had called him to. And friends, if we are going to go out and do the missions that God has called us to do, to go and proclaim the gospel of God to the wider world, we will not do it through the power of the world. 
We won't do it through laws and judges. We're not going to do it through tanks and guns. And we certainly won't do it through wealth and strength. We will do it by slow and faithful obedience to what God has called us to do. So let us use the weapons we are given. We've been called to take the gospel to the nation, so let us go. Proclaiming a gospel of a prophet who reveals God to us. Let us go. Proclaiming the gospel of a priest who reconciles us to God. Let us go. Proclaiming the rule of a king in the gospel who rules over the nations with wisdom and might. And let us go proclaiming good news that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners like you and like me. Let us go, announcing joy to the world, for indeed our Lord has come. Let us pray. Father, you have graciously sent your Son for our salvation. What a wonderful gift. He has done all that you have required out of him. So we ask that you give him what he has rightfully asked for, and what he deserves, all of the nations. May your spirit be poured out among us to make the glory of Jesus' work be known to all peoples. May this be done for the good of your people, whom you have saved from your wrath and called for this end from before the foundation of the world. May you do it for our good, and may you do it for the glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.